draining the Fox News disinformation cesspool. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There is a new group that is trying to defund disinformation online. They've already had a couple of successes with right wing websites and now they are targeting Fox News. Uh, the group is called Check My Ads. It was founded by Claire Atkin. In addition to the founder of this group, she is a longtime brand safety advocate and consultant and she joins us now. Uh, Claire, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about this campaign. Why Fox News, why now? Hi, thanks for having me and thanks for your interest in Check My Ads, which I co-founded with my co-founder Nandini Jami. We are the brand safety advocate and an ad tech watchdog. So advertisers the world over have said they don't want to fund disinformation and hate speech. And what we do is we uncover when ad exchanges, the middlemen who actually place the ads, are working with disinformation and hate speech and sending ads to them against the advertisers wishes. So the advertisers in a lot of these cases, they simply say, okay, we're gonna use this middleman, place us where you think our ads are gonna be effective without any sort of knowledge of what they do with the advertisements, is that correct? Yes, ad exchanges say to advertisers, don't worry, we'll send your ads around the internet, but we will make sure to keep your ads away from the promotion of real world violence, for instance, or election disinformation. And then they turn around and they work with people like Charlie Kirk or Glenn Beck, Dan Bongino, Steve Bannon. These are all people who we have successfully defunded by uncovering the relationship between ad exchanges and these websites. And now we're asking, how is Fox News any different? Well, how did you do it with Steve Bannon and Dan Bongino and some of those groups? I mean, how do you essentially try to try to stop and bring awareness not only to the advertisers, but also put the, the middlemen on notice. What we do is we tweet and we email the ad exchanges and we compare their tech policies, their supply chain policies. Basically they say, you know, we will never work with publishers who spread election disinformation. And we compare that against the real world impacts of the dis disinformation outlets. And over and over again, these ad exchanges choose to drop the disinformation outlets because it's not good for their clients. We don't, uh, we don't pressure the advertisers because the advertisers have already been clear. We're here to talk about the ad exchanges. And so the ad exchanges, it sounds like they've been pretty responsive so far. Yes, so far five of the six insurrectionists that we identified when we launched this campaign on January 5th have been mostly defunded. That is, they have lost the ad exchanges that give them the ads and the money that they need to survive. And now we're saying Fox News is the biggest promoter of the insurrection. So how are they any different? Why are they still there getting a hall pass? Now, is it possible this could just turn into sort of a whack-a-mole that if the ad exchanges realize, okay, well, we don't want to do business with Fox News or we don't want to do business with Steve Bannon, that there'll be some sort of right-wing advertising exchange that will come into place and say, okay, well, we'll take this business and we'll figure out products that are willing to go ahead and advertise with Steve Bannon or Fox News. Absolutely, and we would welcome that in the market. We think that advertisers should have the right to choose where their ads end up. And what we're arguing for is transparency and accountability on what's called the digital supply chain. And we think that if there is accountability and transparency, that's just fine. Claire, what's been the reaction from these various groups, whether it's the the middleman, whether it's the advertisers, whether it's the, the platforms like Fox News, what are, what are they saying about this? Well, it's been really interesting because they have been so responsive about Charlie Kirk. You know, on we launched this campaign January 5th. On January 6th, Charlie Kirk was dropped from their uh, from their ad exchange Playwire, and uh, Steve Bannon, Dan Bongino, they've been dropped from Google Ads even, and. 
they've been totally silent in the last two weeks when we've talked about Fox News. So we're waiting to hear from the ad exchanges and we would encourage anyone to ask uh, what is up with them. We have about 40,000 people who have signed up to send emails to ad exchanges with us. And if you also want to make uh, a statement, if you also want to question ad exchanges with us, you can go to checkmyads.org slash Fox. And that's where you can give us your email and we'll send you action emails with the names of executives, their email addresses and templates of the message that says, your supply policy says this, but you're working with a uh, outlet that does the exact opposite. And uh, that's what we're doing right now, it's a pressure campaign. And the pressure campaign, there's been some criticism from sort of more smaller outlets who say, look, when you go after a Fox News, when you're drawing up advertising dollars for them, it also makes it more difficult for smaller outlets, independent journalists, independent programs to get advertising because if it's quote unquote public affairs of any kind, Fox News or anything else, you've made advertisers skittish. What's your response to that? Yeah, the brand safety industry has done an incredibly poor job understanding this issue. And what they've done is they've actually tried to scare advertisers away from any news that is controversial. And we at Check My Ads are extremely against that statement because we're here for democracy. We think that the news should be where advertisers are. I mean, for one thing, that's where the readers are. And and to scare advertisers away from working with real journalism is the exact opposite message. We're talking about disinformation versus journalistic standards. There's no need to stay away from the news. Is there something different about the online advertising exchanges as opposed to say, you know, Tucker Carlson on the Fox News cable show, he can spew all kinds of stuff and there'll be certain advertisers who still wanna reach his audience. Does that change when the clips from Tucker Carlson or another show then get posted digitally on the Fox News YouTube channel? Yes, there are a few advertisers who choose to be on Fox News on cable. And to those advertisers, we say you have a right to do that, we leave them alone. But there are so many hundreds and hundreds of advertisers who are on foxnews.com inadvertently, who have said we want brand safety standards and who expect brand safety standards who are there inadvertently. And we're really fighting for transparency for them. Now, the other thing is that cable news is only valuable as an outlet, but when you're on the digital supply chain, when you're connected to the internet programmatic ads, you get ads which give legitimacy, you get data which helps you better target your audience members. It's an incredibly useful tool when you're a propaganda outlet to be associated with these ad exchanges. When we cut them off, we're not just cutting them off from money, we're cutting them off from the propaganda tool. And also the demographic information, it's so interesting because if I like, suppose I like to go and look at you know baseball websites, then suddenly a lot of baseball related ads or tickets to the Yankees or whatnot pop up on my various websites. I would imagine that if you then somehow were able to figure out, well, here are the advertisers um, that are popping up on foxnews.com and suddenly they're not gonna be able to get the information of who's visiting foxnews.com. Uh, that puts a, um, it seems to throw a monkey wrench in the industry. That's exactly right. I mean, this is a time the congressional hearings are so moving on the television every day. And we're waiting for the people who promoted the insurrection, the people who who started the insurrection, the big lie to be held accountable. And what I'm really excited about with this campaign is this is an opportunity for everyone, all of us, all consumers to have our voices heard. And when we When we advocate for transparency on the supply chain, we're not infringing on anyone's rights. If anything, we're saying advertisers should have the choice of whether or not to fund disinformation. 
And those advertisers, are they aware? I mean, look, I, I can think of lots of products, whether it's flowers or chocolate or various, you know, Omaha Steaks is a popular one with some uh, podcasts that I've done, um, where it seems like, you know, they just they just want to have their product out there. Are they aware of the control, the, the opportunity that they as products have in terms of uh, deciding, hey, I'm willing to be on this kind of site, but I don't want to be on a disinformation site? The most important thing to remember about the digital supply chain, what we're talking about the ad tech industry is that ad exchanges have taken control away from advertisers for decades now. And a lot of the time they don't know where they are and they don't know the metrics of their own campaigns at above the or below the high level reports that they get from these ad exchanges. So we're talking about an industry, this is like a 400 to 700 billion dollar industry with a handful of ad exchanges who really control, they're like the traffic controllers of ads, money and data. This is not as a place where advertisers have a lot of control. So we have to uncover the ad exchanges and say, what are you doing? So if I'm, let's say, suppose I'm selling flowers and I wanna, you know, I wanna advertise my flowers in places where people are gonna buy it. Um, can I now go, is it as simple as going to various advertising agencies and saying, hey, I don't wanna be on Fox News or I don't wanna be on Steve Bannon and, and are they very responsive or is it more complicated in terms of if you've got a product and you wanna limit where that product goes? Most of the time, it's the right thing to do and all you can do to say, this is the brand safety guidelines that I have. Do not send my ads to places that promote real world violence. That includes insurrections. And what we're finding is that actually advertisers are being lied to. And so what we're pressuring ad exchanges to do is good business. And that's really what this is about. Uh, if you're selling flowers, I think that you should be able to control where your ads are going. But the fact is, is on this giant industry, the ad exchanges are not doing what is right by their clients. And that's really what we're here to uncover. Are there any standards that the industry has created for themselves or is this essentially the wild west? It's a bit of a mix, honestly. The, uh, the ad exchanges and the websites themselves both report about who they work for, but I check my ads. We find discrepancies all the time in that information and we are constantly uncovering where these standards are just not upheld. Are there any products that say, I don't care, I wanna be on foxnews.com or even if they're spreading you know, disinformation, whatever you call it, I'm happy to be there. Any products like that? Yeah, sure, and we would support their right to do that just as we support the right of Fox News to publish whatever they want. We just think that there should be transparency and control on the part of the advertisers and the ad exchanges on within this economy. Yeah, because if I'm a, as a consumer, I, I wanna know, okay, which products are willingly advertising on foxnews.com so I can make a conscious decision. I'm not gonna buy your products, I'm not gonna give you a dime. And, and I feel like the, the transparency helps not only the advertisers, but also the consumers with the choices that we're making. Claire Atkin, the group is called Check My Ads. It's a new campaign trying to defund the advertisements for foxnews.com. They've already had some successes with other groups. Claire, thanks for doing this and explaining it to us, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. In the wake of the US Supreme Court overturning abortion rights and the Roe versus Wade case that had stood for nearly 50 years, now what? Here to talk about this is Mia DeGraff. She's a deputy editor for health at Insider. Uh, Mia, we've seen some mixed reactions in the states. I mean, it seems to be clear this is now a state's issue for them to decide. Some states uh, have these trigger laws in which judges have said, 
Okay, they can start. Other judges have said, no, wait a second, I'm putting in some sort of emergency injunction to hold it for 14 days. How come the disparity? What's going on? Uh, well, I mean, we did know that this was coming, but we, you know, it, it still came as a shock to everyone. Um, you know, as much as you could prepare, I don't know that anyone really knew that this was exactly going to come down the way that it did. Obviously, the leak gave us a head start. So now there are some states which are trying to put in some limits, you know, some. The ACLU, I think, is really trying to make a push. Uh, but we do broadly expect that abortion, it, you know, it, it has already been banned in about nine states and will be banned in up to about 26 states within the weeks to come. So about half of the country is essentially going to have going to be criminalizing abortion. Are these states going to be punishing doctors and women who seek abortions? Is it just the providers? Uh, any details on how that works? Yeah, so each state, the wording is slightly different in terms of their laws, um, and some are slightly more extreme than others. Um, but generally, the issue that we're going to see here is that already about half of, of abortions, sorry, are, are using the abortion pill. And that's probably, we're going to see an increase in that. People just trying to get access to the abortion pill to do a self-managed abortion. The issue there is that that is very safe. The abortion pill is very safe. It's two pills, mifepristone and misoprostol taken together. It's a very safe approach. But if you don't have access to a doctor who can properly counsel you, if you're not able to maybe go and check how far along you are, you might be taking it later than you should do. It might be really complicated for you, for you to even get the pill if it's not provided in your state. So that increases the risk of complications related to self-managed abortions or someone not doing that and then having a very high risk pregnancy. So yes, the risk here is that you could see pharmacists being prosecuted for um, even stocking mifepristone and misoprostol, um, and then people being prosecuted for trying to access the drug for a self-managed abortion. Um, the issue there for pharmacists is that these drugs are used for other things too. Um, mifepristone is it blocks the it, uh, the hormone progesterone, which grows a pregnancy, um, but that's also you know part and parcel of other conditions as well. It also blocks the hormone cortisol. It's used for things like Cushing's disease, Gulf War syndrome, uh, alcohol dependence, different cancers. So there are people now who, you know, firstly, pharmacists might not want to stock it because they don't want to be prosecuted for having a banned drug. But there might be people who, okay, they now need to find another, another medication. So yeah, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. For women who do want to take the abortion pill, at what point in the pregnancy does it become uh, too late or ineffective? So uh, technically, it's advised that you would take it up until 11 weeks. Uh, so if you take it after 11 weeks, your risk of complication really dramatically increases. Uh, again, it's a very safe medication. So even, you know, I spoke to someone recently who had taken the abortion pill at 12 weeks. The reason she took it at 12 weeks is because she found out she was pregnant at eight weeks, but she lives in Texas. Uh, there in Texas, even before Roe was overturned, uh, you couldn't get an abortion after six weeks. So then thus ensued this four week endeavor for her to try and get this pill shipped to her from a different state, which is not technically allowed, but she did it and she then took it at 12 weeks. She was fine, um, but she did know that there was suddenly this increased risk that she might be hospitalized because it's, you know, you're much further along. In my own family, uh, my wife and I, in a, the second pregnancy that she had, the first one, of course, delivered our, our daughter, the second pregnancy after about uh, eight or nine weeks, uh, the heartbeat started. Uh, fluttering in sort of inappropriate way. And the doctor determined pretty quickly that this was not gonna be a viable pregnancy. Uh, and that rather than have this you know, fetus uh, die, 
in in you know in utero that it would be better to sort of control it to manage it. So we you know did did the procedure. Um, it seems like there's a gray area though in terms of is that technically the life of the mother at stake or is there something that the medical profession would say? Well, maybe you could have delivered a still. I mean, so does it, it seems like this puts an enormous amount of pressure on doctors uh, and the medical profession to somehow, if they feel like they want to help women, that maybe they're not going to be able to be honest about the reasons for why they're recommending a procedure. Yeah, it, it, and it's you know it's and I'm so sorry to hear that, and it's something that uh, so many people deal with and are increasingly going to be um, faced with. You see this in countries like Malta is a country where it has a very strict abortion ban, very similar to the trigger law states. Um, and there, there was recently a story which we've been covering of a U.S. tourist who she has to have an abortion because she started bleeding, and it's it was a similar situation where they're recommending a miscarriage, um, recommending a managed miscarriage. Um, but the doctors won't perform the abortion until her life is more severely at risk. So that means waiting for a very severe life-threatening infection like sepsis or waiting for you know other more severe complications. Right now, the 13 states that had trigger laws, um, even before Roe was overturned, in, Insider did an investigation to look at like what are the protections here. And we found that none of these states really have any wording to stipulate what does it mean that someone's life is in danger? We don't know. So now doctors are, as you say, going to have to decide in the moment, oh, I'm going to deem that this is someone's life at risk and potentially risk being prosecuted for performing an abortion. And those are just, I mean, women who, you know, they're, they're, there's a miscarriage challenge. There are various issues that would cause a doctor to say, hey, you should go ahead and get an abortion. Then there are the cases of you know, 14-year-old who gets raped by an uncle and becomes pregnant. And now in several states, she is required to carry that baby to term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there are some states that say they have an exception for rape or incest, but many states don't. Um, you know, you hear on the day that Roe was overturned, you heard so many stories of people who were like, I have a 14-year-old. I can't, she can't just become another statistic here of someone who their life is at risk. Um, it's very young to carry a pregnancy and then not be able to get the proper counseling from a doctor as to what, how high risk it is. You're probably going to see a lot of uh, people who are trying to go out of state or perform self-managed abortions, which uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be incredibly tricky. There's been a lot of talk in Washington about if Congress, if the Democrats can somehow just convince Senators Manchin and Sinema to go all ahead and, and, and support um, changing the filibuster, making an exception for women's rights, as they did in supporting a change in the filibuster for the debt ceiling, that the Democrats could then codify abortion rights. Um, right now, it doesn't look like Sinema and Manchin are willing to do that, but uh, what would that set up? Let's just assume that the US Senate and the House were able to pass. Uh, legislation or codifying abortion rights. Um, would there be, I assume, more litigation that would follow that? Could that be challenged by the states? I will say I'm, I'm a, I'm a health, my, my expertise is in health. So I don't know that sure. I can really answer that, um, I'm afraid. Well, that's okay. Well, well, well look, re, I mean, I suppose sort of related to this, um, it is such a patchwork state by state that I would imagine even for people who are well educated and informed and understand you know, pregnancies and all this, it must be really challenging in a lot of states for women who have less education, who are perhaps poor, to really try to understand what their options are. I mean, I think one of the big challenges as well is now at the moment you rely on you know, speaking to your doctor in a position of authority for advice. Now a lot of doctors won't be able to even give advice. They might not even in certain states when you know medical students and residents 
they might not be able to get the proper training on how to have those conversations even. So you're relying on, you know, I, I know a lot of news organizations are trying to step up and provide that information, but you're relying on the internet, you're relying on secondhand information, and you might not just be able to go to your doctor and be like, look, should I go out of state? Should I, should, do I need an abortion? What do I do if I carry this child's term? Um, it's just gonna be a huge dearth of information. And as I understand it, there are a couple of states that have trigger laws where the viability is so short. I mean, there are a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant by the time they would hit that viability threshold. Yeah, I mean, the six week ban, which is what Texas passed, and which a lot of states have, you know, Ohio six week ban. It's a quote unquote heartbeat bill. You would have to know after one period that you've missed it, which if you have an irregular period, and you know, some people, if you're on, uh, you know, if your contraception fails, but you're on a contraception where you don't really know, you know, certain IUDs where you don't get a period, it might be really hard to to gauge that. So yeah, it's, it's extremely challenging. Um, do you get the sense that? Well, first of all, what has been the reaction in general from the from the medical community to this? Oh, it's been a huge reaction. I mean, every. Um, medical journal, every medical institution has come forward and just con- condemned this. Um, and one of the big issues that we have, I know I mentioned training earlier, um, the ACGME, which is the sort of the board for graduates of you know getting qualified to become an OBGYN, they've said, we're not going to change our rules. If you want to be a qualified OBGYN, you need to know how to pre- perform an abortion. Um, but then the challenge here is that half of the OBGYN residency programs in the country are in states where abortion has been or will be banned in the coming weeks and months. Mm. So that means half of the OBGYN residents in the country, technically to get the proper training, are going to have to travel out of state to learn how to do this. That's not feasible. Um, there's no way that these states, the the you know the states where abortion is permitted, are going to be able to you know train every OBGYN in the country. And also the states, the institutions where abortion is banned. They, it's a lot of hoops to jump through. You know, it's costly to send people. There's travel. There's trans, um, you know, accommodation. There's also licensing to get through. You know, even to send one resident is a huge undertaking. So the concern right now is that we're not going to even in states where abortion is banned, but we're going to see uh, increase in high risk pregnancies and complications related to abortion. We're not going to really have the staff who know what to do necessarily. Uh, so yeah, that's it's a real real conundrum for medical institutions at the moment. What are the worst states in terms of the most draconian abortion restrictions? And and what are the best states in terms of protecting abortion rights? I would say um, in terms of the best, uh, you know, you've got 20 states, sanctuary states and DC. So that's, you know, California, New York, uh, Washington, DC, um, a lot of these sort of like very, uh, you know, blue states, uh, which have promised to protect the right. Um, California has been very vocal about that protection. They've also, you know, promised to train um, residents and also to enshrine the right to contraception. Um, I'd say the worst states, you know, it's it's Louisiana. Um, in Idaho, for example, they're talking about banning contraception as well. Missouri, the the language of their law is really complex. But I would say all of the 22 to 26 states which are going to ban abortion, uh, I, I don't know that you could really cut anything between all of them. It, it's still pretty bleak. It's remarkable and it is beyond shocking and infuriating. Mia DeGraff, she's deputy editor for health at Insider. Mia, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you explaining this to us. Thanks for having me, David. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. And on behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.